0: As we uh, continue in worship, we're going to look at uh, God's word together. And if you've been with us, just to remind you where we are, if you're new, to let you know um, what you're jumping into today, we've been in a sermon series for eight weeks now. This is our ninth week that we've called Delighting in Our Dependence The Gift of Being Human. And we're using uh, a book by a guy named Kelly Capick called You're Only Human to help guide us in thinking about the fact that, that you and I as human beings have limits, right? Many of them, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, even before sin came into the world, God didn't create us to be infinite, to be able to do everything, know everything, be everywhere all the time, uh, but he made us with limits and that's good. And so we've been thinking about that and, and what does that look like for us to own that, to embrace that and then live faithfully Within that. So, we've been talking about that for eight weeks. And for the last eight weeks, we've mainly been talking about how this applies to us individually. And so, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about how that applies to us together, what it looks like for us to embrace our limits together as a church. And so, we're going to look at, to help us do this, we're going to look at a passage from the Apostle Paul in Romans. Uh, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, you can find it printed in your bulletin. I'll give you more context as we uh, get into it. Normally we have it up on the screen, but I, I think we're still struggling with our pro-presenter back there. So um, as we're tracking with the passage, you'll just have to either have your Bible or look at it uh, in your bulletin. But I would invite you to, to open that up now, and I'm going to read it. Oh, there we go. There we go. Um, I'm going to read it for us and then pray briefly, and we'll dive in and look at it. So let's, let's look at this. This is God's Word to us this morning. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we are um, grateful to be here this morning um, through the joys of James's baptism and through uh, the sorrows of, of cancer and um, heartache and other hard things that I know are, are going on with a lot of us. Uh, but we thank you that you invite us to come. Uh, as Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we're grateful that we can come to you now and listen. Um, so would you quiet the noise uh, that's around us? Would you quiet the noise that's within us? And would you help us to hear? You're still small voice, uh, but to hear it in a big way, the um, way that we need to hear it this morning. So come, Holy Spirit, and guide us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I read Dr. Caboch's chapter for this week, I was reminded of uh, a man named Charles Taylor Studd. And I first learned about him back when I was in seminary. Uh, but he was an English missionary at the end of the 19th century in the beginning Of the 20th century and he became known for something that he called reckless Christianity. And so he took the fact that Jesus gave up everything for him so seriously that he did his best to give up everything for him. And that's what he called reckless Christianity, that's what it was. And so he lived this life of radical devotion and sacrifice. And living this way led him to accomplish all kinds of great things for God all around the world in places like China, India, and Africa. But as Capic explains in his book, there, there's another side to this story. While his devotion and his, his accomplishments are to be admired, his approach to following Jesus also led to some bad consequences. For example, near the end of his life, he was working 18 hours a day and was addicted to morphine. Uh, during the last 13 years of his marriage, he only saw his wife for two weeks, even when she was struggling with health, um, which if you're looking for free marriage advice today, Um, that's not a good idea, right? He sent his own daughter and son-in-law off the mission field for not being as devoted as he was, and he once said, my heart seems worn out and bruised beyond repair, and in my deep loneliness I often wish to be gone. Now, I don't bring that up to be critical of him or to discount at all the many great things that he did, but his example stirs up a tension for me. I know I've wrestled with since I was a young Christian in college, reading "Don't Waste Your Life" by John Piper, like this tension of I want to devote my life to God, I want to make my life count, I want to pour out my life, I want to be intentional, but how do I know what I should do? And, and how do I know how much I should do? Does Jesus want me to live this kind of reckless Christianity? And, and if so, how how do I know I'm being reckless enough? And it's a tension that I can still wrestle with as I I see needs with people around me, as I see ministry opportunities, as I go to things like a fundraising banquet and hear about this great ministry, as people come here on Sunday morning sometimes to share about what they're doing in the city or around the world, as I look at other pastors I know and see things they're doing, like all these great things like I could get involved with. And I'm like, "I I know I don't have any margin, but maybe I should still do it. Right? What does God want me to do? How do I know? And there's a, there's a part of this tension that, that's healthy and normal for us, and we're always going to have to navigate that. But the question is, how are, how are we supposed to do that? How are you supposed to do that? How are we supposed to, to know how to, how to think about this? And, and what we're going to talk about today is that the church is actually the place we go to find this balance. It's the community that we join to pour our lives out for Jesus without getting burned out. For Jesus, because the Scriptures tell us it takes all of us to be the church, to represent Jesus in the world, to do all the good things He cares about. It's not something God expects you and I to be able to do on our own. But Christianity is a team sport, and and that's the point Paul's making here in our passage when he says in verse four, "For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function." So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So he says the church is like a body and individually we're like the parts. And just like different parts of our body, we we all have different roles to play. And so that's the vision. And Paul's gonna help us get there in this passage by helping us think. He's gonna help us think rightly about ourselves, about Jesus, and then about us together together as a body so that we can then go and begin to live into this vision and live this out. And so let's look at this and walk through those three things. And so first let's start by looking at the fact that he wants to help us think rightly about ourselves, to think rightly about ourselves. And so we're dropping into a major pivot point in the book of Romans here. For the first 11 chapters, Paul's been talking about the gospel, the good news of what God's done to save us through Jesus And at the beginning of this letter, Paul was going through some of his travel plans of what he was going to do and his longing to see these friends. And then he just mentions the fact that he's excited to preach the gospel to to them. And the mere mention of the word gospel leads him on this long rabbit trail for ten and a half chapters where he explains the gospel. And most people say this is the best explanation we have of it. But in chapter 12, he makes a pivot. And he says, therefore, basically based on everything we've just said about what God's done for you, here's now what you're supposed to do with that. Here's now how you live. And here's what he says in chapter 12, verse two. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so he's God as he begins to make this transition, he's got our thinking on his mind. And that continues into our passage as he uses some form of the verb to think four times in verse three. And he starts with the way we think about ourselves. He knows that if we're gonna be the people God created us and redeemed us to be, again, not the individuals, but the people together, we have gotta start by thinking rightly about ourselves. And he puts his finger on the, the big problem with our thinking about ourselves when he tells us this in verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly Than he ought to think, and this is literally to think over, above, and beyond of what we should think about ourselves. And it doesn't necessarily to mean to be like a full fledged narcissist, but when it comes to the way you think about yourself, who you're, uh, what you're capable of, and, and who you're called to be, it means to think more highly than you should. And Paul knows this is the biggest obstacle to us living into this vision of these many parts in one body that he's talking about, our tendency to think this way about ourselves, our tendency to think God wants us and expects us to be and do more than we should. To see Christianity as kind of like an individual sport we're supposed to go out and take on alone. And see, this is what's behind so much of our anxiety, the compulsion I was talking about earlier. What makes us respond to this tension in an unhealthy way? Why well, it's hard for me to hear about these needs and new ministries and, and not have this internal wrestling like do I need to sign up for that? Should I get involved with that? I don't, I don't think I have the space. I don't really feel like that's in my wheelhouse but maybe I should still do it because it's good. Right, we have these expectations for ourselves that are higher than they should be. Expectations that are even higher than God has for us. And this is one of the big themes we've been talking about throughout this whole series, that we think we're supposed to be more than human in all these areas of our lives, and it includes in the way we think about how we're supposed to serve and, and do things, uh, get involved with what God's doing in the world. And, and this is what Paul's trying to expose. And it's what he's trying to invite us out of. And look at what he says as he keeps going. He, he, again, he says, "For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think." But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So to think highly of yourself is not to think of yourself higher than you ought to think, like you've got an unlimited capacity and gifts. It's to stop thinking that you personally have to be and do everything, but he says it's to think of yourself with sober judgment. Literally, to think of yourself with with sound and sensible thinking. One scholar says this word means to turn the energy of the mind to recognize its limits and to respect them. And another way to say this is to know your role. To know what you actually can do. And to be honest about what you're actually capable of. I had a coach in college that uh, anytime one of our players would kind of start stretching beyond their skill set and trying to do things that they really um, hadn't put in the time or didn't have the skill to be able to do, would kind of scream out at these people, "Do what you can do." Right? Do what you can do. Stop trying to play beyond that. And Paul's inviting us here to do what we can do. It's like when Sarah and I first got married. Like, I thought, it, I thought I needed to be the one who was going to be able to fix everything when it wasn't working or when it was broken. My dad growing up was really good at all that stuff. And so I just thought, like, that was what I was supposed to be able to do. Um, but trying that for a little while, like, it was a disaster. Because when it came, comes to handiwork, I, I just don't have it, right? The gene somehow just completely skipped over me. We'll see if it passes down to our kids but, but eventually we learn, like, yeah, I need to care about these things. I need to be aware of them. And, and some of them, yes, maybe I do need to step in and handle, even if it is a stretch for me. But for the most part, like, let's just pay somebody, right? And let's rejoice to the glory of God that somebody else can do this. And it'll relieve all that tension that it would create if I tried to do it and messed it up. Right? And this is, this, that's where this is inviting us. That's what it looks like to think rightly about ourselves, Not to think too high or too low, right? To recognize we do have gifts, but we don't have all of them. We do have capacity, but we don't have an unlimited amount. It looks like seeing that there are needs we need to take on and and opportunities to serve, we do need to get involved with, but to know there are going to be other things outside of our scope and our capacity and gifting. And we can still affirm that these things are good. We can still care about them, but we don't have to be the person that jumps in and does it. All right, we, can, we can rejoice and thank God that there's other people who can. And for us to be the church of human beings that God created us to be, we, we've got to learn to think this way, rightly about ourselves, with sober judgment. But how does that happen? Because that's not natural for us to think like that. And there's really only one way this happens. I mean, you can just try to, to think that way. But the way you're gonna start thinking rightly about yourself is when you start thinking rightly about Jesus and who he is. And that's the next thing. And that's where our passage takes us next. So again, in verse three, Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself, but think of yourself with sober judgment. And then he says in verse four, here's why. For this reason, for as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And there are two things we can pull from these two verses about Jesus that can help us think rightly about him and then ourselves. The first one is that only Jesus is the Messiah. Only Jesus is the Messiah. Paul says the whole body with all the different members are one in Christ. He's who who brings the body together. It, It belongs to him he's who creates it and this is what christ means it means messiah it means the anointed one it's actually not jesus's last name but it's a title for the one that god always had promised to send his people who's going to come and who's going to save them who's going to bring them into the kingdom of god and rule over them as their great shepherd king So it's a role that's completely unique to Jesus. Yes, Jesus was and continues to be fully human just like we are, but he's also very different from us. And that may sound super obvious on the surface, but the fact is a lot of what you and I are doing when we're thinking more highly of ourselves than we should is we're, we're missing this point. We're thinking in a way the Bible never tells us to, that we're supposed to be like Jesus. And the Bible does tell us we're supposed to be like Jesus in a sense of growing to become more like him in terms of his character developing in us over time as the spirit works in our hearts, but it never tells us we're supposed to be like him in every way, right, in the exact same way that he is. And thinking this way can crush you. Because if you read the gospels and if you look at Jesus' life, he was good at everything. He could meet every need. He did have every gift. Think about it. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He made blind people see and deaf people hear, disabled people walk. He brought justice for the oppressed. He preached the good news of the gospel like nobody had in history. He went toe to toe and outdid the religious scholars on questions about the Bible. He pursued and sat down with broken and hurting people and always made them feel so safe and so loved like he did everything every category of need he hit perfectly and this is why after he healed a deaf man who also had a speech impediment the people that saw this mark tells us in mark 7:37 the people were astonished beyond measure and said he has done all things well he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak the point is only jesus is the messiah and you and me aren't. We're not supposed to be. And he doesn't expect us to be. Jesus wants us to be like John the Baptist, the guy who literally he calls at one point the greatest person who's ever lived. But the apostle John tells us that when people came to him and asked him, who, who are you? You're doing all these amazing things. Who are you? Here's what John says, John 1:19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you he confessed and did not deny but confessed I am not the Christ I'm not the Christ you're not the Christ we belong to the Messiah we're a part of his body but we're not supposed to be him so that's the first thing and then the second thing we learned here about Jesus, is that as the one Messiah, Jesus wants to use us. So Jesus, only Jesus is the Messiah, but he's a Messiah who wants to use people like us. As we've said, he gives each of us a role to play. He doesn't expect any of us to be able to do and be all the things that he cares about, but he invites us to go do it together, and that's the main point Paul's making here. Don't see yourself too highly, but see that you are a part of this. See that you do have a role to play, a role that's unique to you. He says in verse four, all the members have a function. Like they don't have the same function, but they do have a function. If you're in Christ, you have a function. You have a role that Jesus wants to use you in. And so you're not the Christ, but he wants to use you as a part of his bigger body. And that's the thinking we need about Jesus, kind of holding these two truths together at once, balancing each other. Yeah, I'm not the Christ. I don't need to think so highly of myself and what I'm capable of. But at the same time, he wants to use me to do things for him in the world. Like, it's amazing. And nowhere do we see these, these two things come together more than at the cross, Because think about it, the cross emphatically says you're not the Messiah, but it says you're a sinner who needs the Messiah. It shows you, you don't need Jesus to show you how to be just like him in the world, how to serve and sacrifice and pour out your life. You need him to die for you in all the ways you serve and sacrifice and pour out your life for yourself first. But then the cross also says this, even though that's true, Jesus loves you and he wants to use you. You are a part of his plan. He wanted you on the team so bad that he died for you. He took your imperfect record of sin upon himself and he gave you, he gives you his perfect record of righteousness and by his spirit, he equips you with real gifts to serve him in the world. See, the cross humbles you from thinking you could ever be like him, but at the same time, it melts you and makes you wanna give everything you have for him. It frees you from the pressure of having to be and do everything and it propels you to want to be and do whatever God's calling you to. And see the cross, this is what then, as we see this, this this then leads us to think rightly about ourselves together as Jesus' body. To think rightly about who we are as the church and, and what our calling is because it's a community where we can experience this this kind of tension we're talking about, where we can experience more significance than we can imagine, but at the same time, less pressure. right? Because we can see that our lives are so important, that every one of us who belongs to Jesus has gifts and callings that are unique to us, and we can see at the same time, we're just one part of this bigger thing. So we can play the role we have with passion, with great passion and vigor and zeal and we can do it with humility and this is what Paul's the picture he's painting verses six through eight as he keeps going it's where he lands he says having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Like we can, we can play all these different parts, the ones that God's called us to individually. And this is so freeing. Dale Bruner, who's a, a Bible scholar, he tells a story of what it was like for him when he first experienced this. And so he was studying as a graduate student at Princeton Theological Seminary And uh, most of his friends that he was in school with, uh, he said, were really gifted evangelistically. Like, they had a huge heart and and were really good at connecting with the undergrad students who were there at Princeton um, and sharing the gospel with them. And he says that he always felt so guilty because he didn't like doing that and he wasn't good at it. But what he liked to do was to go hole up by himself in the library and study. And He said he felt so guilty about this. Like He should always be doing more or something different, something just like them, until one day during their chapel service, um, someone preached on 1 Corinthians 12, which is a passage where Paul talks about a lot of these same things we're talking about today, and he said that changed his life because it helped him to see that, oh yeah, it's okay that I'm not good at those things, and my friends are. It's okay that I like to be by myself and study, like uh, that's just me being playing my part. Right? And and he has. And throughout his career, he's written some massive and brilliant commentaries on several different books of the Bible, which is, have served people like me, who teach the Bible for a living very well, and therefore has served uh, people like you. Right? That's been the fruit of his work. And if he hadn't done that, if he had stayed in this guilty, sort of anxious place, uncertain of what he was supposed to do, and wondering if it was okay for him to lean into this, who knows if that would have happened? And so we need to ask this question. Let me ask you this question. What what would this look like for you? What gifts has God given you specifically? What do you enjoy? What makes your heart come alive? Where have you seen... God using you in a big way, producing real fruit. Is it one of the things Paul talks about here? Is it teaching, encouragement, service, leadership, generosity, mercy? Is it something else? And just as importantly, let me ask you this. What gifts has God not given you? Right? What do you not enjoy? What doesn't make your heart come alive? What have you spent time doing that just zapped the energy from you rather than gave it to you? And yeah, of course, there's a time that we're all called to do things like that and a time that we're called uh, to stretch, but we need to know what these things are, these things that we're like, that's not it for me. That may be it for somebody else, but not for me. We need to ask God about these things. We need to ask the people around us who know us and love us. We need to pay attention to our own lives. To figure this out so that we can lean in and use the gifts we do have to serve Jesus and the world around us. And so we can depend on others to serve Jesus and the world around us with gifts we don't have. And so getting practical, thinking about this here at Hope, like God's not going to call all of us to be community group leaders. He's not going to call all of us to be elders or deacons or women's shepherding team members, to join the mercy team, to join the worship team and That's probably the easiest one to figure out if you should do or not, right? Can you sing or can you play? If not, sorry, you're probably not called. (laughs) But he's going to call some of us to things like this. He's going to call some of us to other things, to get very involved in children's ministry, uh, to be on the greeting team or or building team, so many different different things. And recently we had to submit our stats for the denomination for the past year it was so cool because uh, we had so many new members join a lot of people for the very first time profess faith in Christ and it was really fun to think about it from this standpoint like to look at it and and say like we did that right I didn't do that like Mark didn't do that our elders didn't do that our deacons women's shepherding team like we may have played a, a part in that who knows but we did that together like the body did that like playing our own parts, all of us together. It's beautiful. And thinking outside of hope, thinking to our workplaces, our families, our neighborhoods, our social groups, like some of us are going to be like Dale Bruner's friends. We're going to be really good at connecting with people relationally, talking about Jesus with people. Some of us aren't right? We're going to be better at at moving in and meeting felt needs, maybe moving in when people are in a crisis, uh, maybe leading our family or organization or team in a servant-hearted way like Jesus. It's a beautiful vision God gives us to not waste our lives to be sure, to pour out our lives for him, but to do it as the limited human beings we are, to see that it really does take all of us to be the church. There are no heroes but Jesus, right? He's the only one. But what a privilege it is to be a part of what he's doing in the world. And as a a perfectionist myself who always thinks I should be able to do everything well, I really love this and I really need this. And I get really excited thinking about us going after this together. I love the way Dr. Kapik summarizes it summarizes it in his book. He says this, he says, only Jesus is his whole body. Only he is the Messiah. The rest of us don't have to be him. We just have to be in him, united to one another as his body. And as we're united to him and to each other with freedom and joy, we can then go and press into this adventure that's living as the church. And That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. So let's go do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Um, Thank you that you have called us and saved us and gifted us um, so that we can be a people, so that we can be the body of Christ in the world. And I do ask today that you'd help all of us, give us wisdom and insight into the ways that you are. calling uh, the ways you have gifted us and the ways you're calling us to play our part uh, and give us wisdom and insight into the ways that uh, you haven't gifted us and the ways that we need um, the other parts of the body uh, to be your church. I pray that we would be a community like that here at Hope and I pray even as we're in a hard season Lord that you'd show us what this looks like uh, to be the church together. Uh, We thank you for Jesus and this great calling you're inviting us into, we ask in his name. Amen.